This episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses that you can get delivered to your door for a fraction of the price you pay in stores. Learn more right now by visiting casper.com slash supertrain. Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? It's going pretty good. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not in my... A customary podcast scenario. Sure setup. you are. Sure you are. No, does it sound the same? They sound fantastic. I have I have dead rock and roll ears. Well, it all sounds good to me. <laughs> right, it just sounds like a a compressed little uh, one of those uh, grilled cheese sandwiches that is made in a waffle iron. It's what Robin Williams called a Buddhist gift. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see what you mean. Something that you don't want that you have to learn to accept. I heard in an interview in a documentary one time where uh, I think it was uh, Terry Gilliam was saying that a mis- Robin Williams says that a mistake is a Buddhist gift. Uh, mm. You know, what we say in rock and roll is oh. one time it's a uh, one time it's a clam. Mm-hmm. Two times it's a it's a theme. Mm. Three times it's a it's a riff. Is that how you make jazz, John? That's exactly how I make jazz. How many clams does it take to make a jazz? Hmm. Um, well, it depends. Is it a white sauce or a red sauce? What do you think, Mr. Al? One, two, three. Three. Three lights. <laughs> three licks to the center of the Oh, no, Mr. Merlin. I've been trying to listen to more music. Have you? Have you been trying to watch old uh, Saturday Night Live episodes for uh, Mr. Bill? Oh, Mr. Bill. Mr. Bill. I used to really look forward to Mr. Bill. So did I. I don't think I really so fully understood the implications of Mr. Bill. <clears throat> uh, you know, there was that, that, that's, the, uh, that's that National Lampoon sense of humor, which I think you needed to be uh, very, very preppy and very, very stoned. Oh, uh, preppy and stoned. Mm-hmm, preppy and stoned. That I'm early, in New York City right now. Album. What are you doing in uh, – are you, are you in the actual titular city? It sounds like you, <clears> might, it sounds like you might be in one of the boroughs. I'm in a borough right now. I'm on the I'm on the great island of of Long, mm-hmm. and um, uh, but I'm staying in New York City, and New York is really really full of young preppy drunk people. They also smoke um, a lot, and so much cigarettes. Is smoke. it me? Don't you see more smoking in uh, the no, city? Enormously more smoking. I mean, everywhere else people don't smoke anymore. They don't smoke anymore. But in New York, they smoke. They smoke cigarettes. like it's just a normal thing. They do. They smoke like it's a normal thing, and also they don't uh, have any uh, like prohibition against talking on the phone. Oh, you see people right. on the phone all the time. And in San Francisco, you never see a soul on the phone. Well, you Perfect. see them. You see them staring at the phone and typing, but people rarely. You see. Um, you see a lot of people. If you see people talking on the phone, it's usually because they got one of those robot Bluetooth things, mm-hmm. and it's uh, that's that's a whole different kind of thing. Uh, yeah, that's <clears throat> that's right. People in Seattle the same way. They're staring at their phone. They're engaged with their phone, but they are not talking into it in any way. And in New York, they're talking into their phones. And I think it's because you can't stare at your phone in New York mm. or you'll be murdered. Yeah, you know what? I think that's that's part of the ethos. I was in line at the snack bar at the cinema yesterday, and yeah. I was thinking, isn't this funny? All five of the people in front of me are staring at their phone. And I thought to myself, you know, why don't Self- people... I thought to myself, self, I I said to myself, I says, well, why don't people just talk to each other anymore? And then, and then, and then it was really nice. One guy says, uh, to to another guy in line, what do you got there? And the guy says, it's a yeast. I like to put it on my popcorn. 
Oh, he brought and, his own yeast. And then they went into a long conversation about which theaters have yeast and don't. And I thought, why don't you just look at your fucking phone and shut up? <laughs> I'm, you know, like if somebody, if I said, hey, how's it going? And somebody used the word yeast in the first sentence. Oh, yeah. That's a real like, that's a real like, pull back, pull back, get out, get out. Yeast feels like the topic of a one issue person. What I call the file card person where they, that's one thing they want. It could be Bernie Sanders. It could be yeah. bikes. It could be huh. yeast. <clears throat> Right. How do you know that? Uh, how do you know that uh, you have a fireman at your party? Hmm. Uh, I give up. How do you know? He'll tell you. Huh. That's one of those kind of non-jokes. <laughs> it's a great joke. I mean, I guess you have to know. I guess you have to know the culture of firemen. <laughs> I guess you have to have ever had a fireman. It's at like your that, party. that dark Russian sense of humor. You, you have mm-hmm. you have to be a '90s kid to understand this fireman joke. <laughs> yeah. The 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 joke being. That a fireman is not going to miss an opportunity to tell you he's a fireman oh, because they're right. because they're here. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of folks like that. God bless them. You know what? Thank you God, for your service. God bless them. Banjo did players. I ever did I ever tell you about the time? I was thinking about this the other day. Yes. I regret not having joined the military. Hmm. You regret? And when when did that regret uh, first start uh, evidencing itself? Well, I. When I was young, I, I always assumed I would be in the military at some point. And then right about the time that you are the age of someone who's going to join the military, right, I was a I was a peacenik and an anarchist. Yeah. And so not joining the military felt like a real rebellion against my earlier self. No one was pressuring me to go into the military. My mom actually, anytime a recruiter would call the house, my mom would like swear at them and, and slam the phone down. Not my son. That's right. And she said, if you join the military, I'm going to move you to Canada or something. She had some idea that she could prohibit me from joining the military. She was going to disown me because she is a real peace activist. But I thought I would join the military. And then during the the heyday years where it was like, go join the military and learn discipline and be a young person, I – it wasn't in my – that wasn't part of my scene. Hmm. But then later, like – when I was 30, I said, boy, I wish when I was 18, instead of the scene that I did occupy, I'd gone and joined the, joined the military. And it's, it's one of those things where you're like, how can you say that? Well, how different would you be? Right. It's a, like a completely different life. But then after 9-11, when I was in my mid-30s and still young enough to join the military, I went and looked and they had <clears throat> they'd raised the top age. And I could have just gone at 35 years old and said, sign me up. I'm going to the, you know, I'm going to, to fight on behalf of justice. Going to the big game. Whatever we thought then. Yeah, right. Um, got, a little, got a little mixed up about the countries, but, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I really thought about it. But, you know, I had a lot going on. Sure. And, uh, and now I'm too old to join the military and mm. it's very easy for me to say, boy, I wish I had joined the military, but I do feel like having a kid, like some other things in life, you know, <clears throat> some not, not bucket list because that's vulgar, but Ugh. you know, like the idea that, that in the course of living a full life, you do the, you know, you do the following things and, um, you got to tick your boxes as a grown up. Yeah, what was the, you know, Starship Troopers, right? They won't even give you full citizenship unless mm. you said. And what if, you know. Oh, it's like Israel. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Like hmm. Israel. Everybody goes. Except in Israel, it seems like everybody's 
super, super sexy, right? That's a sexy army. Oh, yeah. And don't you learn like uh, Jewish Kung Fu? Yep. Don't they have their own yep. special Kung Fu they teach you? Probably. Mm-hmm. Probably. They, um, you know, that's like, I think of them as like the tank top army. Because mm, mm, right? mm. they're carrying their guns on the subway. They're all wearing tank tops. Yeah, it just right. seems like a, what a good way to be 19, carrying a gun and wearing a tank top. I'll tell you when it occurred to me. I mentioned last week my primary high school girlfriend. Uh, she joined the Air Force when she was about, I want to say 22, maybe 23. Did you have a secondary high school girlfriend? I had a secondary and a tertiary high school girlfriend. It occurred to me about, about five years ago that she's probably retired now. From the Air Force, yeah. Oh, yeah, right? think about it. As a, as, a, as a lieutenant colonel, and she's making like... A, a, a normal wage for the rest of her life. Yeah, don't they pay you pretty good? They do. Yeah, see, that, that's one of when the, you really think pro- about it. <laughs> I really could have served my country and retired. They pay you not very well through the whole time that you're working, comparable to what you could probably be making in the real world, but then they continue to pay you, not your full salary, but but pretty darn good. But they you get free glasses and stuff. Your life. Yes, Get right. to go to those nice VA hospitals. <laughs> they're so great the mm-hmm. VA mm-hmm. and you get that haircut that yes. one haircut I definitely uh, you were a cadet right and I was a cadet we were both military cadets uh, for a year I was uh, as a consequence of going to military school I was automatically in NJROTC mm-hmm. and Na- if you Na- had just Naval pursued junior ROTC. if you just stayed in the NJROTC I could have retired at 19 yeah well, you, they would have commissioned you in the Navy. You'd be an officer. Oh, easily. And, of course, I would have been an officer just by virtue of having been recognized as standing in the door of the recruiter. Yeah. They would have said, oh, my God. John, I think they would have fast-tracked you. I think, I think if everybody had had, had had their head together that day, you probably could have been retired in a couple of years. You know, right into officer candidate school. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like if I had ever gone to, if I'd ever gone to Yale and stood in the doorway, which I never did. Right. But as a young person. If I'd gone and stood in the doorway, somebody would have seen the light kind of from behind, right? Yeah. There would have been like an angel choir. Well, they could have just seen the cut of your jib just from the silhouette. That's right. From mm-hmm. the silhouette, and they would have said, Jesus Christ, what are you doing out there? Come in. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe I would have been pushing a broom, but then I would have been solving math problems on the chalkboard in the, uh, you know, in the night. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, see. I, and that's right. the thing is once you're fast-tracked, you can really get super fast-tracked. And let's be honest. Woody Allen says, uh, what does he say? Showing up is 80% of life. If you show up at the Mossad or you show up you show up in the doorway of Yale, they're going to walk mm-hmm. you in. And then once you've got a literal foot in the literal door, then the fast-tracking really starts. And that's when they can – you become like Ender. Uh, you know they're gonna they're gonna move you up a lot of a lot of places very very quickly. They're gonna realize they name a game after you. They'll name a game after you. Uh, they they might try and gaslight you a little bit. No spoilers. But the point being, I think at that point they, they're gonna see they're gonna be able to actually maybe even measure the cut of your jib. Let's be honest. And so this gonna, is what I, yeah. Well, go ahead. No, no. I just I, it disappoints me, John. You you should be there's so many things you should be retired from at this point. It breaks my heart to know to know how little your your jib cut was appreciated. It breaks my heart. What I don't know, right, when you're when you're making a list of the things that you ought to do yeah. in the course of a life, yeah. I don't know how many of those I've done already. Mm. But I do know the ones that I've aged out of. I do feel if you're going to live a full life, you should have been in the Mossad at one point. Yeah. You should have gone to Yale and and gone through as a member of the of the NJROTC. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's see, you should have uh, fought in an overseas war, um, retired before the age of 40. Yeah. Right? All these things. What about apps? Should, should have designed should, should, an should app. Should you have made an app? 
you should have made an app after winning an, winning an Emmy, right? If you got out of the if you got out of the Navy or the Air Force, let's say, mm-hmm. and then went to write for a hit comedy show, you become an EGATA. An EGATA. They just add an A to it for the for so the if army. Mel Brooks. If Mel Brooks puts out an app, boom, he's an EGATA. An EGATA. Mm-hmm. What, what do you got? You got Rita Moreno. Yeah. You got Mel Brooks. Who mm-hmm. else? Did you know that I I wrote a tweet to Rita Moreno and then I put it in my drafts folder and I haven't sent it. I do those. Well, do you remember what it was? I mean, I don't, I I'm do. not sure if she listens to the show, but do you, do you have a sense of what you what you were going to say to her? I do. So I don't know if I've ever described it on this program, but when my dad was um, after he was after he had already left the Washington State Legislature. And I think maybe, yes, in fact, after he, uh, after he worked for John F. Kennedy, he was sort of bouncing around, let's say, in Washington State. It seemed like he had – it's hard to put the stories all together, as you know. But it seemed like he <laughs> had somewhat missed an opportunity that in the early 50s he was, again, fast-tracked to being a, um, a prominent Democrat – in Washington, and then somehow he had not played his cards right, and here he was, forty years old, not sure which way to which way to turn. I don't don't really understand that feeling. Yeah, right. And <clears throat> he was doing some acting what? at the at the Cirque Theater in Seattle, and the Cirque was a kind of, um, you know, it was a little bit avant garde. It was theater in the round. And it was the theater space was in a neighborhood that was in the early 60s considered transitional, which remained transitional until very recently. And now it's very expensive in the in the great in the great uh, song, the great operetta of America. Yeah. But at the time he was in this uh, theater company and it was a theater company that did a very excellent job of bringing uh, national and international theater people to perform in Seattle. This is pre-World's Fair. And so my dad was in a play with Rita Moreno Whoa. in the late 50s, early 60s. So it would have been right around the – I'm going to – I'm just going to throw out a guess that it was maybe before he went to work for Kennedy. Okay. 59, let's call it. And he's in a play with Rita Moreno. And he characterizes himself. Now, this is the same man who I don't I want to make clear that he never said he shot down a Japanese zero with a 45 pistol. He mm-hmm. only claimed to have shot at a Japanese zero. He left the conclusion of that engagement to our imagination. But he <clears throat> implied pretty strongly that he was going out on some dates with Rita Moreno. Some mm. dates. Some number of dates. Theater, romantic theater dates. dates? Mm, so was no. your dad otherwise engaged at this point? No, or maybe unclear. Mm. This was also a transitional period. He was he at one point he got divorced, and then at another point he met my mom. I got it. Okay. Right in this same area, fifty nine. Going through changes, as Zumpano says. Right, and this is uh, this is a man, well going through changes. Right, that's uh, he's a victim of changes, as Judas Priest says. That's a good point. Um, but fifty nine, right? This is our Mad Men era. Yep, everybody's really well dressed, 
my dad at what I think at one point was wearing a pencil mustache. <laughs> wow. Anyway, went on mm, unclear some dates with Rita Moreno. And then one night he was waiting outside the theater or no, 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 I'm sorry. He was escorting Rita Moreno out of the front door of the theater on their way to a date. And a man steps out of the shadows and I know where the Cirque theater is and I know where the shadows are. I can picture the shadows. They're right there. Mm -hmm. Man steps out of the shadows. It's Marlon Brando. Oh, Jiminy. And Marlon Brando says, Rita, or whatever. I don't do a good Marlon Brando. Rita. Rita. Make you an offer I can't refuse. That's pretty good. Thanks. I just stuffed a bunch of cotton in there. Uh, and then Rita Moreno leaves with Martin Brando. Ugh. Dashing my father's hopes. Now, <clears throat> this story mm -hmm. is not verifiable by searching the archives that are currently on the internet. Yeah. I'm looking at the, the internet. I'm looking at the Cirque Playhouse and I, I can't see anything here about it. Right. So the Cirque Playhouse will confirm that Rita Moreno was in a production there. She is, so the, says here, it says here that uh, I see her name here. The impressive list of Hollywood stars who trod the boards at the Cirque includes many, many names. You got hits like you got Bob Cummings, you got King Donovan, Marsha Hunt, Tab Hunter, Howard Keel. You got uh, Roddy McDowell, Rita Moreno. So I actually met Z Roddy Z McDowell. Zazu Pitts. I met Roddy McDowell as a child. Shut up. And my father introduced After Cornelius? Me Yes. H had he already been the ape? Yes. Oh, my God. What a thrill. I was a, I was a big fan of him. Oh, I love that guy. I did, too. I He's did, so too. He was my, He's like the English Tony Randall. That's exactly who he is. And he, um, he was, at the time, my favorite actor. And I'm not sure whether or not that's because I met him. I think it is, largely yeah. because I met him. Just as Count Basie was my favorite big band orchestral leader. You met Count Basie? Well... I Sorry. stood there. I stood there as my dad met Count. Oh Basie. my God! Was he wearing a hat? Count Basie was not wearing a hat. Okay. Um, my dad, massive Count Basie fan. He acted as though he was meeting, um, you know, Richard Hell. Oh, that guy's a genius. Um, what? What an arranger! What a touch that guy had. Right? Ding, dun, ding, ding, dun, dun, dun. He could do so much with four notes. Oh, so hot. Small chords, small chords. He's got those little Nat King Cole chords. Mm. So, but my dad didn't make a big point to introduce me to Count Basie at the time because he was pretty starstruck. I was just standing at his knee. I saw it all go down. But I actually was introduced to Roddy McDowell. Oh, man. So anyway, I'm, I wrote this tweet to Rita Moreno. Hey, so wait a minute. Was he nice? Roddy McDowell? Yeah. Oh, my God. He was incredible. Oh, man. That's so you good know, to hear. He turned to me. He gave me all this attention. It was in a big crowded room. The lights were up. He you was just, there. You just made my entire month. That makes me so happy to hear. Yeah. It was, well, by that point, the Cirque Theater had moved. It was no longer in its prior location. It was now down in the center of the city. And uh, and we would uh, we would go there sometimes because you know even even in his uh, late fifties, my dad was still very bohemian. One of the he was one of the theater people. He's one of the uh, you know. One of that, one of that crap. Not really, but he, uh, but he was a member of a lot of guilds. Anyway, so I wrote this tweet to Rita Moreno, who's still very active on Twitter. Um, you know, kind of like Tony Tennille. You don't know that she's out there uh, via one kiss. She's not. You wouldn't think she's one kiss away from Roderick on the line, but it turns out Tony Tennille is. 
It's one kiss away. One kiss away. From I, I, you know, I, I, you remind me of Tony Tennille sometimes, and I, I, are you following her on the Twitter? Yes. But she's a lot of emoji. No, okay. she's, you know, she has this autobiography and she's, and you know, it's a good autobiography. She's out, she's trodden the board mm. of, of a, of a book author, <laughs> but I don't know. That's right. They trod boards. Tr- trodden the boards. Of a, okay. All right. Different boards, wider planks. Okay. But so I don't know how many kisses away from Roderick on the line Rita Moreno is. And I wrote this tweet and it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit like dear Rita Moreno. My dad says that he may be like, he never said that he, that you guys like necked in a parked car, mm-hmm. but that you you're, you're went out, out of characters. You went into, you went on. Some dear Rita Here's a link. Here's a link to the rest of this tweet. Did you say like create C R E eight? You run together your Mr. And president with no space. Yeah, I spelled it uh, like Toon Yards. Every other one capitalized. <laughs> I would die for you. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses that you can get delivered to your home for a fraction of the price you'll find in stores. You can learn more right now by visiting casper.com slash supertrain. Here's the thing. A Casper mattress, it provides resilience and long-lasting comfort. Casper's mattress is a one-of-a-kind. It's a new kind of hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. These two technologies come together for a terrific night's sleep. Just the right sink, just the right bounce. It's an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Ah, I've been sleeping on mine for so long now, and I love it. I do not want to leave my house. I don't want to leave my house anyway, but especially because of the Casper. Ah, My whole family loves this thing. Here's the thing about mattresses. Right now, retail mattresses, they can cost you well over $1,500, but Casper mattresses are so much more affordable. Their prices start at $500 for a twin-size mattress. You go to $750 for full, $850 queen, $950 for a king-size mattress. It is literally unbelievable. And on top of it all, Casper mattresses are made in America. To understand how Casper's different, you have to look at how this mattress racket has worked in the past. The mattress industry, these weasels in the mattress industry, are they're inherently forcing consumers to pay high prices. you got a middleman. you got to go into that store, and a guy in a necktie wants you to lay on a bed. That is no way to decide how you want to spend one-third of your life. But Casper understands that buying a mattress online can seem a little bit weird. But don't worry. Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. They offer free delivery and returns. Within a 100-night period, you try it out and see what you think. It's just that simple. Laying on a bed for a few minutes. You guys, it is no way to decide if it is right for you. That's why they have turned this buying process into a risk-free experience. you got to try this for yourself. These mattresses are shipped shipped to your house in a box. You can, you can move them up the stairs by yourself. Opening them, it's an awesome experience. <gasps> the mattress inhales. And now you have a beautiful sleep solution in your very own bedroom. We've had our Casper for over two years, and we just love it. No matter where I travel, I always want to get home. Please get me back to my Casper. And I, I got to tell you, I think you're going to love it, too. And here's the thing right now. Listeners of Roderick on the Line are going to get $50 toward any mattress purchase when they visit casper.com slash supertrain and use the very special offer code supertrain. That's $50 off any mattress. Terms and conditions apply. Our thanks to Casper for all the great night's sleep and for supporting Roderick on the Line. <laughs> but I didn't send it because it a little bit... Throws my dad under the bus, right? Because Rita Moreno, there's, you know, there is a chance that she'll read that and she'll go, ah, Dave Roderick. I haven't thought of him in years. 
And she'll write me back and go, of course I remember your father. He played the role of, of uh, Tony, Tony Randall mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. Uh, in our hit show at the Cirque Theater in Seattle in 1959. Or Rita Moreno may not reply. Or she may say, sorry, don't remember anybody by that name. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to throw my dad under the bus. I don't want to, you, you don't want all, every one of your stories fact-checked after you're dead. <laughs> you don't want your... I mean, certainly that's, that's, I hope that's not that's not fair. I hope that my archivist goes about trying to fact check all of my stories because they it will be that will be the subject of a documentary film when that fact checker when that dubious documentary film series that there, that dubious person yeah. after I'm dead who says, huh, this can't all be real. Jonathan dubious and then finds themselves little by little. Yep. It, it, all, aston- it, it checks out. It checks and out. That's the, it that's checks the out. montage. It right? checks out. They're more and more astonished. Until their jaw oh, is all kinds on of, the t- all kinds of stuff you left out because it didn't seem plausible. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And then when they when they find out that the story was undertold, yes. Ugh, are they Jur- be journalists who like to check facts are, are gonna? There's gonna be a lot of openings in the next few years. <laughs> I think I think somebody maybe getting started right now. You know what? I, not to take you off your story, but maybe somebody comes in and gets a lay of the land. This could right. be somebody who comes in and you get some, uh, you know, get some briefings with you. You could walk them through the cigar boxes and the cowboy boots. I'm and old j- at this point. You're saying? Well, I mean, you're you know, younger than I am, but I'm saying right now you bring somebody. Maybe you start interviewing people for this. Oh, I see. Do you get to pick your own? I've been watching The Crown on Netflix. Now, uh, Winston Churchill did not like the guy who painted his portrait. He didn't like the way the portrait turned out. No spoilers. He did not want a modernist doing that. Do you think you need to have somebody who's not on board with you? Do you need a skeptic to come in? Should they know where the cowboy boots are? Or should they just discover it on your own after your death? I'm afraid that anybody that I hire right now is going to be engaged in the project or is going to want to be engaged in the project for reasons that will diminish their capacity to say – Wait a minute. They're too, right? they're they're too credulous right now. A little bit. A little yeah. Bit, yeah. It has to happen late. It has to happen uh, when somebody – like I think that fact-checking in journalism, like digging down, is going to be very fashionable in 25 or 30 years in the same way that vinyl is fashionable now. Hmm. Right? Like it's going to be an, an uh, like a sort of an anachronism. Some young kid is going to say, you know what? Back in the old days – Journalists like took a critical eye. They Journalists totally tried to get to out, the bottom. They could totally figure out if things were probably true. Right. And then they're going to, then they, this young hipster is going to be like, that's what I'm going to get into. Yeah. This is going to make me really cool. I'm going to get into this whole like journalism thing. And maybe, may, I mean, there's probably going to be a lot of things that they can investigate more interesting than me. But let's say oh. one of them's like, I want to just be so this is going to be the, I'm going to be the most obscure. I may, um, I'm hesitant to bring this up, uh, trigger warning. Um, but, um, <clears throat> uh, Marlon Brando and Rita Moreno did have a torrid affair. Yeah. According to the internet, <clears throat> yeah. but he cheated on her oh, so dear. much. She, she tried to take her own life. Oh my goodness! Now, I'm, I'm not Ooh. saying anything one way or another. I don't know if this. I don't know if this will be comforting to her. I don't know if it's going to be, you know, uh, sand in her gears. But maybe just keep that in mind while it's in your drafts folder. So circa when? Uh, I don't know. I don't visit the Daily Mail or New York Post, but I, I'm looking at it just in in the search results. There's also a very. If you go and search <clears throat> on their two names, you'll see a, a very cool picture of them in bed together. Oh, well, I mm, I bet from from my dad's uh, story. I always kind of put together a picture 
of the fact that Marlon Brando and she already had a long history. Yeah. And that this was one of those things where he from, from, showed you, up. You think from probably at least from treading the boards. Uh, yeah. And also probably from sexy time. Yeah. Um, that's a kind of board treading. I, if you're doing it, if you're treading it, if you're treading on boards, mm-hmm. that's a different, that's very sexy. He probably that had a yacht. Means, that means that you're not, you're not confined to soft places, right? You're huh. going to, you're willing to just do it out any old where. Oh, you mix it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. A little bit of the strange. Mm. But what I'm guessing is that Marlon Brando steps out of the, uh, this is what I've always guessed. He mm-hmm. steps out of the dark. Rita Moreno's not expecting him there. And also probably, you know, would have said if you'd asked her, well, if Marlon Brando steps out of the dark shadows, what are you going to do? This is Marlon, let's, said, be clear, let's be clear for our young listeners. This is Marlon Brando in the 50s. That's right. And Marlon Brando He's in for- the 50s is not the Marlon Brando you have in your head right now. No, he's a very handsome man in the 50s. Marlon Brando in the 50s, not not single-handedly, but he helped upset an idea of sexy male masculinity in a very interesting way. Mm. Because he was was really good-looking. He was really masculine, but like maybe, say, what, um, James... um, Who's the guy with the jacket? James Jacket. Yeah, like James Jacket, the guy who died in the automobile accident. Oh, yeah, that's right, James Jacket. Like famous, James Jacket, vulnerable. Uh, he's, he's forever young. Vulnerable, forever. forever. You got vulnerability. You got maybe sure. a little bit, not sensitivity is a fraught word. Well, I think, I think, though, that's correct. But like you wouldn't rule out that he's maybe bisexual. Oh, no, I, don't, I, no, I wouldn't I don't rule it out he, at all. I don't think people had a name for that. I don't think people, I mean, they had some pejorative names, but I think people saw something, or you take a Salminio, right? Mm, Salminio. And I think, I think you see, he was in that uh, James Jacket movie. Take him, take him. Take him. You know, I, I think he had drug problems later on, which is, which I is a think shame. That bisexuality was understood to be a thing. And I think that it was, you know, it was um, something in New York City that was... Maybe even chic. But sometimes people, they throw a shape. They got, they got a certain kind of vibe. And all I'm That's saying is, as, as great a man as, uh, let's be honest, David Roderick was a great man. I would not want to be seeing Marlon Brando come out of the shadows while I'm trying to make time with Rita Moreno. Well, so no, I don't know. So re- reading here just a little bit, right? Rita, a 22-year-old Rita Moreno, met the 30-year-old Marlon Brando in 1954. So a long time before this. And uh, I cannot say this doesn't seem like Rita Moreno's voice, but the New York Post, a, a, a paragon of journalistic integrity, it's never wrong, quotes her here to say that he was a great lover, sensual, generous, delightfully inventive, would be gravely understating what he did, not only to my body, but for my soul. Every aspect of being with Marlon was thrilling Mm. because he was more engaged in the world than anyone else I've ever known, she writes. I totally believe that. Mm -hmm. I think he feels, I think he felt things very, very deeply. Well, but she goes on, Hmm. possibly as an outgrowth of this. Now, this isn't quoting, I'm not sure. We're back back to the Post now. I'm I'm not sure how the the New York Post does its... um, Fact-checking. Yeah, but uh, she says, or someone says, the New York Post writer says, possibly as an outgrowth of this, he had insatiable sexual needs. 
which he unabashedly pursued with droves of other women. So here we are, insatiable, unabashed, and droves. No, that's... He broke my heart and came close to crushing my very spirit with his physical infidelities and worse with his emotional betrayal. So this all happened before my dad... um, before my dad met Rita Moreno and maybe mm, date, mm. date went on, went on date. This is not getting simpler as a story. No, no. And so when he steps out of the shadows, right, he's the guy that's almost, that's broken her heart. He's the guy that's caused her, um, to, you know, to yeah. crush, uh, almost crush her very spirit. And yet she can't resist him and leaves my dad standing just adjacent to the shadows and uh, adjacent to the shadows would be a great mm-hmm. autobiography, autobiography title. Mm-hmm. If you were going to trod the author board mm-hmm. and, uh, and then off they go into the night. And then that's where the story ends. My dad does not, he does not follow up with like, well, and then the next day we had to keep doing this play. He didn't say that was the last I ever saw her. You know, there's always that there's always the rest of the story, which a lot of times you don't get because the dramatic moment isn't. And then we kept doing the play for two weeks. The dramatic moment is like Marlon Brando. That's just good storytelling. Yeah, that's right. But I, you know, I have no idea. I've, and, and the internet is silent or the internet is, the internet is intentionally mute on the subject. Maybe in the fullness of time, your own incredulous biographer We'll be able to work on this. I'm thinking here of reading the uh, the Alexander Hamilton biography. Like all biographies, it begins way before that person was born. If you can do a biography, you know, well, you know, you take for example the great Albert Goldman biography of Elvis, one of the great biographies. That begins with Elvis being fitted into a corset and getting his uh, and and getting his diarrhea medicine before he goes on stage, along with his speed. That sets the stage for the Elvis you're gonna you're gonna get here. But most biographies start a long time before. We're gonna learn about Alexander Hamilton's you know, grandparents before we learn about Alexander. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So with you, I mean, obviously, there's going to have to be some solid David Roderick material. But I don't know. I don't know. We've talked about this before. A well, lot maybe of this they could go through his old checks. It's not going to make well, but yeah, I don't think there's a check. I don't think it goes back as far as a check to, that would have like on the bottom of it, you know, a dinner with Rita. <laughs> but uh, Rita Moreno in this same article references being looked up and down uh, by a uh, by a predatory animal who spotted his prey and paralyzes it with that look. And later on, she sees that same predatory animal in the, in life magazine. Turns out John F. Kennedy. Oh dear. And then after Marlon Brando, she dated a very, as she describes him, a very disappointing Dennis Hopper. And then boy, Elvis. Oh, come on. So in addition to... Rita, Rita, Rita. Yeah, in addition to EGOT, also yeah. relationships with with uh, Elvis Marlon Brando and potentially my dad. Although, you know, he never... My dad was not lascivious, right? He wouldn't like... But wink, I mean, wink, also, nudge, you, you, have to, you have to remove these cataracts of history and go, well, that's the Dennis Hopper of the 50s. That's yeah. the Elvis Presley of the 50s. Yeah. I mean, if you get your idea of Elvis from the fat Elvis stamp, man, go watch Elvis in like 56. It's a whole different scene, man. Look, but yeah, man, but even look at him in the 68 comebacks. Battle. 68 comeback. Now that's amphetamines again. Well, but he, but he, but it doesn't read as amphetamines. No, Boy, but he he's brings, he a, brings, he brings the motherfucking ruckus in that for sure. He does. He's got a lot of charisma. Well, you know why? It does. Can you imagine how much better your life would be if you had Scotty Moore? 
If you had Scotty Moore and Count Basie, I'm just saying, you get some tasteful people in your band. Can you imagine the super band that you could have? Who, if you had, if you had Scotty Moore on on guitar, you got Count Basie on the keys. Mm-hmm. Who else are you going to bring in that band to have the world's most tasteful uh, backup band for John Roderick? Mm, Hal Blaine. Hal Blaine. Right. Hal Blaine. Can you imagine the patience of that man? How patient he must have been. I don't think of him as very patient. Well, he's had a lot of problems. He had to sell his awards and stuff. But but yeah. you know, just having to go through. All of, all of like Phil Spector and Brian Wilson making a beat with their mouth and saying, do that, now change it. <laughs> yeah, or just, yeah, right. Like sitting in the room while Brian Wilson does 400 takes. Those stories are so great. Just, you've uh, seen that Wrecking Crew documentary, right? Where oh, they would just show up and it would just be like dozens of people in the room for like four hours. Yeah, just over just, and over. Yeah. And then sometimes nothing because Brian wanted to figure out how to make it sound like a fire engine or whatever. Yeah. Brian, Brian would, uh, he'd, he'd <laughs> sit, sit and le- le- learn to play the theremin. <laughs> um, so yeah, if I had Hal Blaine and Carol Kay just sitting in chairs, uh, smoking cigarettes at my, was she at wearing my those leisure? little cat eye sunglasses? Uh, yes. That's in, a great in my story. Yeah. Yes. And then Scotty Moore playing the guitar. Well, and Steve Cropper playing the guitar. I mean, you know, if you had the wrecking crew, Hmm. At your disposal. Okay. All right. That's pretty good. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a pretty good band. Right? Yeah. Right? And uh, and then... And Donald why, why Duck stop? Dunn playing second base, you think? Yeah. Why stop? Or Tom Petty? Why stop there? <laughs> why not have the whole thing uh, being recorded by George Martin? George Martin. Or, uh, yeah. or Nigel Goodrich. Nigel Goodrich. You've been watching Sound Breaking, haven't you? Admit I, it. I just discovered it last night. How fucking great is sound breaking? It's so great. I went, it's better I watched, than you expect. You're thinking this I is going to be another Talking Heads music documentary, but holy shit. It's so good. How blame? I watched three episodes right in a row. Yeah, me too. And I said, this is really good. Why, why is this not? Why are there not billboards in Times Square for this? Yeah. Why do we have to keep watching like Kevin James make more uh, material? And I'm not opposed to Kevin James, but he produces a lot of culture. A lot, I think, disproportionate with his with his like his mm, uh, objective value, right? Like, here's yeah. Kevin James. He's fine. He's good. I like him. Fine. Is the reason he's not Sir Kevin James. But yeah, no, I don't think he even but, has an OBE at all. He's Mm-mm. no he got. <laughs> but he's got he's got he's got a new TV show where he sits on the roof of his house in a in a lawn chair and plays a blue collar guy with a with a uh, really suspiciously pretty, really pretty beautiful wife. wife. <laughs> and now he's in the subways here. I see he's got a movie where he's a uh, like he's a uh, implausibly overweight um uh like assassin <laughs> or- <laughs> when you've got a premise that's that strong and you bring in a Kevin James <laughs> That all is right, a license right. to I'm, print money, my friend. Listen, I'm going to sell this in the room. <laughs> uh, CIA assassin. Okay, get stuck in a door. Who, <laughs> who now is a mall cop. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Boom. God Sold damn it. Uh, um, show, then one you show, have this documentary. To, you, have this, you have this documentary. Yes. Simultaneous. Yes. Contemporaneous with the, all this Kevin James culture. Yeah. This documentary where they interview literally all of the giants of popular music and they're all and the, and the the script for it is just this sort of seamless beautiful 
Well, it's a two, let me steal two quick things. Uh, my friend does this uh, podcast with, uh, with TV critic Tim Goodman um, called TV Talk Machine. Two things I want to crib from him. Number one, hmm, I guess when George Martin's involved, you can find some pretty fucking amazing video oh, footage. That's right. Nobody that's right. existed. Production company, right? Where did that come from? But also, the canny way that it's not the usual, okay, now let's talk about glam rock. Now, let's talk about new wave. Now, let's talk about blues. Just the stuff about Bessie, Bessie Jones, right? Just like getting like, like Q-Tip's got a thought on that. Like every Every, you know, every person has a thought on this thing, and you start to see, it, I think, pretty fairly how the pieces fit together. Yeah, right. You, you listen. I mean, Roger Waters is a very difficult person. Oh, he was so gracious in this. I'm, I don't know. I'm sure that was him. He's beautiful in this thing, and he's like, so Roger Waters says, and it just it comes. It's cut out of nowhere. They're talking about something completely else, and then all of a sudden, Roger Waters says, when they first played Sergeant Pepper all the way through on the radio, we, we Pink pulled, Floyd pulled off the road. We're on tour in a van, <laughs> right? Pink Floyd, on tour in a van, we pulled off to the side of the road to listen to the entire album on the car stereo and were like blown away and said, like, how do, what do we do next? And you just go, huh, right, boom. Like, uh, that people, you hear all the time, Sgt. Pepper, very influential album. Yeah. But here's Roger Waters and, you know, like in 1968, Pink Floyd. And when you think about, think about what, what was going on then with those homies. Yeah. Here it is, Sergeant Pepper. And they're like, it's theatrical music. It's theater. And yet it's also pop music and go. But also that, that theme that keeps coming up probably because it's very George Martin-y, that concept uh, that certainly reached its apex was Steely Dan. The, the concept of making music that you can't play live. The idea is we're going to make something here. Sergeant Pepper is not meant to be something where we go to Shea Stadium with no monitors and yell really loud. This is yeah. meant to be there are things happening here that can't actually happen even with a real band. Yeah. yeah. That's that's yeah. it's it's so And you're right, Steely Dan. I mean, <laughs> Sorry, you know, I had to get a dig in. You, you hired the hitmaker. Yes, there's gas um, in the car. What I what what I came away from the three episodes with though, I mean, aside from like 700 wonderful moments and wonderful feelings was um, like watching Nigel Godrich, who was no older than the Radiohead bros. He's so young. Yeah. And um, he's just in the studio with them, and they're just doing their thing. And the collaborate, the collaborative feeling of making a record with uh, making a record with somebody, where it where it also feels like they have all the time in the world. And right, they're the, the, like, the theme keeps coming up of like making it like a safe and secure place. You can be vulnerable. You can try things. Yeah, and they're just a they're a member of the band. Yeah, and it's not a thing where you say, you know, oh well, we've only got three more hours, and then it all has to, you know, we have to wrap it up because there's another session in here. And, uh, and dude bros gotta, you know, gotta make a living. It's like, we're in here until this gets done. Did you see the voice episode of, yeah, where Adele is doing oh her God. Adele thing? First time I've ever really thought, well, see, I, re I watched that one twice and oh. the first time, the second time I watched it, I don't know, the Christina Aguilera thing felt a little bit contrived, but the first time I watched it, I was really moved and it reminded me of you a little bit. And your, mm. your philosophy of like, we're not going to, this is not hound dog. We're not going to mm. do this 42 times. And I don't Let's know if do that it. story about her was exactly true, but it worked for me. I thought that was such a great 
bit, even if even if it was massaged a little bit, who knows? Linda Perry's well, a hit so, maker, but but that that story of her wanting to redo her first take the entire time that they were recording, and then settling on the last one, saying, "Okay, you can do it one more time," but nope, stop after one minute, stop. Not as good as the first one. Stop. We're done. Does that? What did you think when you saw that? My, <clears throat> so I wasn't able to see the voice all the way through. Oh, gee, sorry, spoilers. It's okay because. Um, uh, because my uh, my roommate in my hotel room here in New York City, let's call her my roommate, yeah. said at 4.30 in the morning, can you turn that down <laughs> after th- watching three straight episodes of it? <laughs> what, were you, at, what were you watching it on? Were you watching it on an iPad? I know. I was watching it on the hotel television because it's a public television show on PBS. But you had like on demand? No, it's on PBS. It was just it, I just lucked into it. It was just I was You're flipping kidding. through the channels watching procedural uh, crime dramas and like autopsy photographs. That's so cool. Is, I saw that there. I've been watching them in the PBS app. They're all up. PBS is like, ah, fuck uh, it, just put them all up. But that's so cool. So you were watching them like, wow, that's exciting. That's even more so I'm, fun. I'm flipping through the channels, right? Yeah. And I come upon episode one in the first minute, oh, and I was like, what's this? I wonder. Magic. And then it was like. So three episodes later, I hear I hear this voice. Can you turn that down? And I and it, my first reaction is, you have no idea what I'm watching here. Like, no, I can't turn it down. I should turn it up. Yeah, we should turn all the lights on. Well, now that I spoiled and, it for you, it's basically Linda Perry, Perry talking well, about <clears throat> recording. But wait, but wait, I get what you're saying. I understand what it is because of this. Hmm. For many years within the music business. It has been fairly common, fairly understood knowledge that Christina Aguilera is the hardest working singer in the game. I've heard like, this. Everybody agrees. Everybody talks about it. And 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 because it sounds amazing at first, you think like, ah, she's just. She's just you know, super talented. She shows up. She has yeah, a young diva. Checks out. Yeah. yeah. She's got some kind of cup of tea over here. She works for an hour and then says, you know, fix it in the mix or whatever. But everybody says she's a perfectionist and she just, she works harder than anybody else in the room. And as as soon as Linda Perry showed up on the screen, you know, I have, I, she's very out. She's very outspoken. She's done a lot of amazing work in the music industry, mm-hmm. but she's also someone who's wearing a hat. She's got a lot of neck tattoos and a story. Yeah, she's got a lot of neck tattoos. She's got an unusual hat. And I feel yeah, like the un- hat, yeah. Unusual hat. I mean, that's what divorces me from Pharrell a little bit. Oh, unusual interesting. Hat. Yeah. Uh, ben Harper in that episode also wearing a hat. He's got a story I feel too. Like hat and a story. He does. He's got a story. You know what I'm saying and, though? You know, you know what I mean though? This is like this is not the first time you've told this anecdote. That's right. Yeah. Do you remember the first Ben Harper record? <clears throat> I know Ben Harper's name. That's it. So Ben Harper now is a member of the sort of horde tour culture, right? You think of him now as somebody within the John Mayer school of like mm, a little bit what I, what I think of as like greasy dentist office music, you know, like it's not just dentist office music. It's a little bit greasy too. Like the band train, (laughs) <laughs> or it's just like it's it's on the it's in the dentist's office, so it's not offending anybody. It yeah. doesn't offend middle aged people that are getting their teeth cleaned. Hmm. But it's also trying to rep that it's either rock or blues in some kind of real 
in like, oh, this is the blues. And it's not. It's not the blues. It's something else. It's something a little greasy. But the first Ben Harper record was, because Ben Harper and I are almost exactly the same age, I think. And it came out in the 90s, not even the late 90s. And it was really good. It was the, he was this young guy that was playing lap steel at a time when kind of nobody was playing lap steel and it had these good tunes on it. Ah, 1992. Yeah. And it was being played in all the cool Seattle cafes. It was like, it was, it did feel like here's a, here's a guy that is doing something nobody else is doing. He's very authentic and these are good tunes, right? It felt like the first Lenny Kravitz record where you're like, what is this guy? Mm Mm-hmm. He's even better than Terrence Trent Darby. Hmm. But then as time goes on, somehow they pick their, they pick their culture. It's not what you think their culture is going to be, or maybe their culture picks them. I've told you, haven't I, about the time like modest mouse in Seattle in the nineties was very cool, young, punky, weird band doing some weird Weird, stuff. Weird and angular. Yeah. Kind of, kind of initially they were a little bit like almost pair Ubu-y. Yeah, right. Isaac Brock would buy the cheapest guitar he could find with a with a whammy bar. He would take the whammy bar off and he would put his hand under the floating bridge at the back of the guitar and would manually whammy the bridge. Like he was he was doing that not with a whammy bar, but just with the palm of his hand, the butt of his hand. And it was like that kid's doing something that nobody else is doing. And then I was at I was at the show which I think was the turning point for Modest Mouse, which was one day they were playing the Crocodile Cafe for their usual, they expected their usual audience of 240 people. And it was not their usual audience. There was a sold out show of 350 people. And the additional um, hundred people were all wearing white baseball caps backwards. And Modest Mouse took the stage and were like, whoa, who are you? And the hundred people went, Woo! Hmm. Modest Mouse looked on stage horrified. They looked as horrified as, the, as we were in the audience. Like, who are these guys? And it was the bros. The, bro, the, bros, the bros had discovered them. The bros discovered Modest Mouse. And the bros came at where formerly there had been no bros. There were now bros. And the next time Modest Mouse played, the 240 people who had followed their careers up until that point were gone. Hmm. And in their place were 900 bros. Hmm. And off they went. I mean, and that was their career. And you could, you could tell they didn't want that. You know, you could see on their faces like, no, 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 no. We want the, we want the, our friends. But you don't get to pick your audience. And I wonder if that didn't happen to Ben Harper, where Ben Harper was like, hmm. and one day there were all, all these, uh, like Joe Michaels or Dave Michaels or what's his yeah. name? Dave Michaels. Oh, oh, well, yeah, yeah, John Jacket. John Jacket, right? Yeah. Jack, Jack Jacket. Jack Jacket. Uh, and then they were all there. And, uh, and then it's like, well, you know, you don't get to pick your audience. You got you to gotta play for the people that are buying the tickets. Lonesome Crowd of West came out in 1997. Mm-hmm. That's the first one I owned, I think. Wow, yeah. the one before that was at Dub Narcotic. 
Was it K? So, they were on K? They, they, they did everything right. Ooh. I mean, in the in those early, early days, it's wow. not that they did everything right. It's that everybody liked them. Yeah. Um, they were. They were quirky. They were really good. And, you know, I've, I, I, uh, they, they made an album that never, they made some recordings that never came out that are kind of owned by a friend of mine that still sit on his shelf on tape. And he said that when they were 19 years old, they were literally sniffing glue. Hmm. And that feels very authentic. Yeah. Like glue sniffing. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. Glue, that's like, wow. <clears throat> I, yeah. You gotta, you gotta kind of stop and put your finger on your chin and stare up at the ceiling yeah, for a certain age, that when you're doing inhalants, you're not doing it to be cool. You're just sniffing glue because woo. You think that would ever catch on in New York? I mean, as it is right now. Last time I was in New York, I just felt like everybody was smoking, and now I mean, here in San Francisco, if you're smoking, you might as well be masturbating into a bag. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's it really looks like you're just like, look, I'm so sorry. I just I got ten minutes. I'm really stressed out. You know. Yeah. I- Inhalants, like, inhalants could get hot. You never know. I feel like New York really, really doesn't um, just is just doesn't care. It's yeah. just not ever going to care. I remember when smoking was first outlawed in Los Angeles, and there were all these bars where they. So Los Angeles used to have a thing. I don't think it does it anymore, but it used to be very fashionable in LA to turn the lights down in the bar so low. That you felt like you were in a catacomb. Hmm. Like you'd walk into a normal bar that had normal couches and people sitting around and the lights were so freaking low that you couldn't – it was like you can't really navigate this social space because everyone is just in shadow. That's not very safe. It was not. It didn't feel – I was not – and that, you know, I was rock and roll, but I was not that comfortable being in a room with 300 people that I couldn't see. Because of dark, not because of, if, if it was 300 people I couldn't see because of smoke, yeah. fine. Mm-hmm. Sure. 300 people I couldn't see because of dark. That's more organic. That's more like a grassroots kind of uh, darkness. Yeah. Smoke it up, right? Mm-hmm. Smoke it up. But when smoking was first outlawed in Los Angeles, there were all these bars where it was clear that, that somebody said, well, we're just not going to enforce that. And so there was suddenly not just not just the normal amount of smoking is cool, but now this additional like smoking is illegal. I don't think that I don't think that goes on in LA anymore. I think that that was very that was very brief, and then people realized, wait a minute, we're LA. Like we eat per capita forty avocados a week. Mm-hmm. We're per, not per capita. Ones. That's a lot of avocados. You know? Yeah. You know that's why of that's why global warming. Is that right? Yeah, because of the avocados. Avocados, you, you can get them in California, but if people are eating forty a day, and what do you got? You got probably uh, about ninety million people in LA. Something 90 like million people. Something like that. Times, times, times 40, 40 avocados a day. That's like 3,600 avocados. Easy. So that's why global warming. And ah, I don't think yes. It's enough because there's not the kind of journalism that we used to have. No. And the smoking is probably not helping. I see. I think the smoking's out. Oh, is this a turns out, John? I'm maybe, looking Maybe people at, started smoking again. I'm looking at sniffing glue here mm-hmm. on the internet. Locker room. You just don't see locker room in Rush like you used to. What's locker room? Oh, the I've heard them called amyl nitrates. I think those oh, yeah. poppers, but we used yeah. to just get a bottle of it and snort it right out of the bottle. You're telling me that you used to snort amyl nitrate? I didn't know that's what it was called then. I, I see for years I heard <laughs> amyl nitrate as the drug that you would use in a gay bar. To yes. me, 
Well, see, to me, you would go to a, I don't know, I never knew why you went to a sex shop to get it, but you would mm-hmm. go to a sex shop and you'd pay something on the order of 5 to $8 for a bottle of, in Florida, it was called Rush. In mm-hmm. most other places, it was called Locker Room. Oh my God, Locker Room. Locker Room? Holy shit, it never occurred to me till now. Locker so, Room. Yeah, right. Oh my God, it's right, on, it's right there on the label. Ding, 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 ding. And then you go, you, and you can, you could snort that. And I, you know, I, I used to do a fair amount of that. You could keep my, it in a glove my, box. My sense of amyl nitrate was that it was a thing that you did right as you were orgasming. Yeah. And, uh, and it turned your, you know, talk about jacking off in a bag. Yeah. Uh, it turned the whole <laughs> thing into like a, woo, yeah. it's like being on Coney Island. There was a lot to recommend it. Yeah, certainly you're going to have a brain damage situation. But, but the beauty of it was you could take it, you could pretty easily get that into a concert. And you could keep it in your car. And it was the kind of thing where, like, if you smoked a doobie, you're going to have lots of smoke and stuff. But like with with uh, with locker room, you get really super high for like ninety seconds, and and you get a little headache, and then it goes away, and you do it again. Locker room, locker room. You know, uh, the inhalant of choice in Alaska at the time was nitrous oxide, and we would right. go to the party supply. I think store. that's made a comeback. We find a lot of those on the street here. Nitrous, yeah, whippets we call them. Yeah, we but we would go. We we did whippets, but we also went to the party supply store and would buy. Like a canister. That's they're, size they're pretty of the, costly. If you buy them in Whippet format, even if you yeah. got a cracker and a balloon, that's that gets pretty costly. Yeah. You, so we that's why we would buy them in these like fire extinguisher sized. You cut canisters. out. You're saying you cut out the middleman. Cut out the middleman. Mm-hmm. And we'd say we're putting on a we're doing a party for our high school. Oh my and goodness. And we'd like to buy a thing of this for our balloons, and they would be like, "Here you go, son. Having have a, whip, a good whip, time. Having a whipped cream party." And then there was an adapter. Mm-hmm. That you would screw on it that would allow you to fill up balloons. Hmm. And of course, how do you use nitrous oxide? You fill up a balloon. We used to use punch so, balloons. You could go to a head shop and buy this thing. We called it a cracker. But it was this yeah. thing that, that was a bespoke item, looked kind of like brass knuckles. You'd open it up, you'd stick the little whippet in there, and then you had a, uh, a kid's punch balloon attached to that. Yeah. Boing, boing, classic, boing. Punch classic ugly drug paraphernalia. Yeah. But we never, no one was hip to amyl nitrate in Alaska. We were too busy doing nitrous. Hmm. Let alone, and I think nitrous. Oh, it's, know, nitrous, it's 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 very superior. It's a wonderful, wonderful high. If you've never tried it, I highly recommend it. And yeah. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical doctor. My friend introduced me to nitrous oxide and dancing to Susie and the Banshees, and I never looked back. I was listening to Susie and the Banshees the other day. Oh, y'all said that lies in dust. Well, my way. friend. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, was, no, no, imagine that. Imagine you got the 12 inch of that, the really long version. Yeah. And you're doing some nitrous. Think about that for a minute, buddy. I am thinking about it. I makes you, I, want, makes you want to masturbate in a bag. I lived it. Um, <laughs> I lived it. And, uh, it's also, you know, nitrous oxide is very good with, uh, with classic, the classic uh, era of British heavy metal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it can also, well, I'm not suggesting this. I don't think this is a good idea. But it, it can also be nice when you're super high. Well, okay, so this is, this is the thing. And this is what I've never fully you, understood. Do you get Dr. Pepper with that? Is that what you because, drink? You used to drink Dr. Pepper? Is that right? Uh, well, Mountain Dew. Mountain and Dew, then, sorry. Mountain Dew. And then Dr. Pepper, as, as time went on, I said, look, Mountain Dew is for kids. Yeah. Uh, but Dr. Pepper is a sophisticated drink. <laughs> sophisticated because, because it's old and you feel like, it's an old world drink. It's an old world drink. You think of, you know, like an old man is going to order a Dr. Pepper in a soda fountain. Yeah, it's got like a pruny taste. Nobody's going to order a Mountain Dew. Blech. I mean, Mountain Dew is like, if, if you're down in the, if Mountain you're in the Dew's Appalachians. Mountain Dew is for fucking mooks and jeeps. Fuck that. Right. 
things. If you're if you're in the Appalachians and you say Mountain Dew, you might get some moonshine. Oh, or you might get might like, like get a bottle of crystal meth. I bet it's one of those things where there's some what they call namespace pollution. I bet there's a nice. lot of things called Mountain Dew, and you want to be real careful what you order and from whom. I bet if you're in the Panhandle in San Francisco and you ask a guy for Mountain Dew, you're going to get a sheet of blotter acid. Oh, or he might urinate on you. <laughs> <laughs> or urinate in a bag and then hand you the bag. <laughs> Can you rush? I, Can I, I snort this while you're urinating on me? Can I get a Mountain Dew? No ice? <laughs> I feel I feel like the thing about nitrous oxide is when you're watching when you're watching a movie in the uh, mm. speed or rush genre, right? Where some uh, young people are driving some fast cars, okay, some uh, like a Gone in Gone in Thirty Seconds, yeah, or whatever. The, fa- the Fast gone, and the Angry, yeah, Gone in Fifteen Seconds, Fifteen Seconds, and then the then the follow up movie was Gone in Eleven Seconds, Fifteen Five. So all of those, uh, all of those movies, those racer movies, yeah. you'll notice that they often have a bottle of nitrous oxide as a uh, performance enhancer. Oh yeah, right. Where, where they shoot nitrous into their car, and it somehow, I I think the way it works is that it somehow, um, what it just. Uh, no, I, I, Evil Knievel has given talks about this. Evil yeah, Knievel right. used to say you don't want to be doing drugs. That's like doing pure nitrous. Now Nux. When Nux hits the pedal to get the extra Nux. speed in, in uh, Fury Road, is that nitrous? Probably. Yes. Nox. Nox. Nitrous oxide, right? N-O-X. Oh. Um, and uh, yeah, it like densifies the fuel or something. And mm. then it burns. Mm-hmm. And then you're all of a sudden you're slammed back into the back of your chair. Backboard, backboard, you angel boy. Yep. Yep. And and I'm going I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the if in in one of those movies when the nitrous button gets pushed yep. the the person that goes into the lead at that moment is not going to win the race. Oh, you know what I'm saying? Oh my. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Spoiler alert. Mm. Mm. But so I have found that nitrous is acts similarly as a power enhancer for other drugs like marijuana. Hmm. If you do some marijuana and then you push the button on some nitrous. Yeah, you're going to get more stoned, more high. It's got an additive, an additive quality. Right. Right. Yeah. Now I'm sure there are people listening to this program who are like, "Why are these two advocating drugs?" I can. Well, we're not, but I can tell you why. Because our marijuana is not your marijuana. Mm, that's your right. Marijuana. You buy. You buy that the fucking crazy ass marijuana. You people with who love your marijuana get. Forget it. I had stuff like that maybe once in my life. Maybe. Uh, you're talking about the chronic. Yeah, I'm talking about the chronic. The, the, you're talking the, about the, the medical grade, as they say. Yeah, I'm talking about the Matanushka Thunderfuck Matanushka. type operations. I'm, I'm, I went in. I went into a drugstore yeah, the other day. First yeah. time I'd been in one. A drugstore. I, I went. No, the store of drugs. Oh, the store. Of the okay. Tienda the de los drugs. De los drugs. And I said to the guy leaned on the counter, you know, kind of casual because I don't belong there. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause I haven't done any drugs in 20 years, No, but I'm there with some friends. They wanted to go to the drugstore. Hey, we're in Seattle. Can we go to the drugstore? Mm-hmm. I was like, sure, let's go to the drugstore. I know where one is. I know a gal that owns one. Mm-hmm. We go in, we're leaning there and they've got some, they've got some pot people working behind the counter. And my friends are looking at all the stuff that you can buy bubble gum and bubble yum. And there's a, there are bath salts that are infused with pot. Talk about namespace pollution. You know what I mean? Like like face cream and condoms. You and go into the pot. store of drugs and order bath salts, and they give you marijuana things to put in the bath. It looks like a bath salt. It acts like a bath, bath salt. It smells like a bath salt. Okay. But it's full of pot. 
Okay, but it's not the face-eating kind. I don't think that. I think the jury's still out on that face-eating stuff. Yeah. No, that was in Tallahassee. Yeah. The first one or the second one? I don't know. Did you hear about the second one? Was there another one? Yeah, the first one was the was the first one where the guy got shot. Bath salts face-eating. But there was another one recently. A boy, a young man who was a Trump supporter, freaked out in, again, in Florida. Yeah. Unclear whether he so, Sorry about that. And uh, he also ate someone's face. Oh. Flocka? Is that what they call it? What's Flocka? Mm. Flocka. Is that the name of Flocka? Flocka or bath salts? Uh, Flocko. Flocka. F-L-A-K-K-A. Fla- I really liked his, like, 80s dance records, Flocka. Was that the guy that played the pan flute, John? Mm, the pan flute guy was Zamfir. Uh, Enrique. Enrique Suave. Enrique Zamfir. Enrique no, you're Zamfir. right. Zamfir, he was the master of the Zamfir band. Jacket. He's not the only one that played the pan flute. But I he, got he's the, he's the self-proclaimed master of the pan flute. I don't master. think it's like I don't think it's like uh, a river, river dance, Lord of the Dance, where clearly mm-hmm. Michael Flatley is 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 the Lord of the Dance. But Ooh, really? Have you ever you ever seen him dance? Did the queen call him that? You think he got an OBE? I feel like if you're lord of the dance, oh, that, you, that's you should, a, you should that's have property type. and maybe be like a member of parliament. That's right. That's exactly right. You're, you should be in the House of Lords if you're the lord of the dance. I haven't seen the end of The Crown. I still got one episode left. So maybe Michael, Michael Fly. I heard he's a boxer. I heard you don't want to fuck with that guy. That's what I heard. Does he stand in a clearing? Hmm? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> Well, you know what you can watch on YouTube? Uh, my, my daughter and I watch this twice a month. You can go in and see the final performance of Riverdance from circa 1996. And it's, uh, it's breathtaking. I feel like the final performance of the Riverdance is what we were all waiting for. Mm. Mm. Uh, did you find it breathtaking? The cloppity clop, clop, clop of, of that dance? Ah, ah, it's, clop, it's, clop, cloppity, it's clop, stunning. Clop. The, the line could be a little bit straighter, but give them credit. You know, they've been at it for years. thing is, we got burned out on that because it was always in TV commercials for years, but then mm. I finally watched it on YouTube, and I was like, this is pretty good. Also, the lady dancing with him. I saw a she, thing you on You should YouTube. check out the lady dancing with him. She, she looks like she smells good. Is she, does she, did she uh, warrant a... Yep. I watched no, Rita, a thing. Rita Moreno. I bet Rita Moreno smells good. I bet she doesn't clop dance, though. Hmm. You've seen her dance. Oh, yeah. In, Everything's in free in America. Film. West Side Story, uh, which I highly a, recommend you pick up. We've watched it. The daughter has seen it. We have watched this movie. We like this movie. It's a good movie. Mm-hmm. From your first cigarette to your last dying day. I, I, I was on YouTube for whatever reason, for whatever reason that anybody Phew, goes I on I spent YouTube. a lot of time on YouTube. And I saw a thing where there were, it was a, it was some kind of show, and I'm going to say Broadway-esque show or, mm-hmm. or off-Broadway show, where a group of hip-hop dancers... And a group of river dancers had a sort of dance-off, West Side Story style, mm-hmm. where they were beefing, some kind of beef. And then one guy went, oh, yeah, well, cloppity cloppity clop. And then the other guy went, oh, yeah, well, oh, no, it was tap. It wasn't, it wasn't a hip-hop dance. It was tap, but done in a contemporary style. It's like right? river like, tap versus urban tap? Like yeah, like tap, but but with a lot of uh, with a lot of hip hop shading, mm-hmm. and then river dance, but in a sort of like this is just how we do in Ireland. Mm-hmm. This is just we're sitting around. This is our urban dance style. When things get a little rough in Belfast, yeah, we, I think it's uh, a I think it's a regular Ireland. Is it an, is it a Northern Ireland thing? I thought it was a regular Ireland thing. 
I'm, I'm going to say – I'm going to go with you and say regular Ireland. Regular Ireland. But, yeah. You know, there are regular Irish up in, in Belfast too. They're yeah. not all – they're not all orangemen. Mm. Uh, but so it was a it was a very entertaining show where there there was like you know some uh, Savion Glover style uh, zappity dabity dap yeah tap over I love here. that stuff love it and then uh, then then cloppity cloppity clop over here and for a brief moment in the middle of the show you think oh these are these are similar there's there is similar talent required to do these styles mm-hmm. right like. Cloppity cloppers are really moving fast and doing lots of stuff. And then the tap uh, dance is, you know, like also we all love tap dance. But then as the show progresses, the tap dancers cannot help themselves. And they just school the Irish dancers. Oh, really? Just lay waste to them. And it's not part of, it's not meant to happen. It's not part of the, the, the show is meant to be like, See, these two traditions of clop dancing, they're the same. But in fact, the tap dancers were a thousand times better dancers. And they just, you know, they just couldn't stop. Right? I'm intrigued. They're like, zappity doom pop, bop, bop. And then there's, because they are capable of so much more polyrhythm, there's so much more like off accent and like smooth like like style and you're allowed to use your arms you can use your arms you can do and you can slide there's Mm -hmm. all this sort of sliding and like you're dancing on the on the sand and then that caused me once i realized that tap dancing was just empirically uh superior to all other dance Mm -hmm. then i went down a tap dancing youtube rabbit hole (laughs) Where you're watching like some of the greats, the tap greats. Yeah, what's his name? Uh, but what's his name? Uh, Anthony Jacket. What's his name? Uh, yeah, Gre- Gregory. Bob, Gregory. Uh, Bob Jacket. You're talking about Gregory Hines. Gregory Hines Jacket. Yeah. But that the guys good. that the guys that Gregory that were like that Gregory Hines was paying respect to, mm-hmm. like the the uh, the you know the originators or maybe not the originators, but that generation of like a you know, Bojangles Robinson type situation. Mm. They were uh, they were all uh, like seventy five when Gregory Hines was right. third, right? Right. And he's like, "I'd like to introduce to you the man that taught me everything." He's and the so Ricky J of tap dancing. That's right. He's he was he brought tap dancing forward. Gregory Hines, but but had great reverence for the people that came before. That's right. The reverence. I like that. And so there were there there was there is a lot of footage on YouTube of like the masters, the old school masters of tap, and they all had different styles. And there's there's some old there's some show where a bunch of these guys at 80 years old were all doing a little bit of tap battle against each other. And uh, talk about charming. I bet that's classy as hell. I watched it and I got pregnant. Hmm. Briefly. Mm, these are complicated times. <sighs> I feel like I feel like Susie and the Banshees are becoming more important to me as time goes on. Mm. Hmm. And I don't know how that can be true because I didn't like I liked them, but I didn't feel like they were you know they were like a sub cure. Well, they were as an American. Uh, 
I wasn't a huge fan. Actually, Cities and Dust was the first Cities and the Banshees thing I got into. I, I then went back and heard the other stuff. But they're in a weird place from an American standpoint because, like, you might know she's kind of famous for being, like, an original punk. You might know they're kind of famous because Robert Cure was in the band. Oh, Robert <laughs> No, old, good old Robert Cure. <laughs> Robert Jacket was in the band yeah. for, for, like, a year, right? Yep. Uh, early? No, I think I think maybe kind of around that time, like around the. I think he took some time off from uh, from uh, the Cure band, but 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 they're in a weird place. Cause are they kind of are they goth? Are they well, are they dance? It's kind of weird. They're such a perfect fit for England in some ways, but in America they're kind of like you know neither fish nor fowl unless you're a super fan. And right, we I think really she had a huge influence of... on like goth goth kids. Goth kids, yeah, that's right. No, only '90s kids would get this. Mm. I feel like Gary Newman. And Human League and Eurythmics were all on my side of the line that I drew somewhere without knowing. Somewhere in the sand, I drew a line. Mm -hmm. And Gary Newman and Human League and Eurythmics were on the side of the line that I dug. Mm -hmm. But like Depeche Mode. And and many of those like bands that most people might know from one hit song that have not just many more songs that you may not have heard, but were in other bands before you got two boy army, you got the tourists, you got all this great music that like never surfaced over here. Yeah. Right. But there was, but there was also a line of seriousness and somehow, even though flock of seagulls were really derided at the time for their silly hair, I always included flock of seagulls on the side Human League, Eurythmics, Gary Newman, Flock mm-hmm. of Seagulls. I I accepted those bands and enjoyed them, even if I was quiet about it. Yeah. Whereas Depeche Mode, Thompson Twins, right. uh, yeah. that stuff over here, I was not on its team. I was, I was against it, for whatever reason. Hmm. I didn't like ABC. Um, oh, I like ABC. Well, I know, but I just was against it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, and like Depeche Mode, like Susie and the Banshees, I had it over there. I had it kind of over in the Depeche Mode category where I couldn't quite, couldn't quite bring it over into the, like I really was into Duran Duran, didn't like Spandau Ballet. Uh, yeah, they, <sighs> let me ask you this. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page or something. Did you ever see a movie called Erg, A Music War? Oh, Erg, A Music War. See, now to me, that movie was very, very important to me. Really? Oh, God, yes. And I saw it. My friend taped it off probably Night Flight or HBO, probably 1983. And um, it was funny because on the one hand, you could see what the Go-Go's looked like before they were the Go-Go's. But look, listen to this lineup. OMD, Magazine, Go-Go's. I'm just going to jump through some of these. Flesh Tones, Joan Jett, X, XTC, Devo, The Cramps, Oingo Boingo, Dead Kennedys, Gary Newman. Gary Newman, I think, doing a two-boy army song. Klaus Nomi, first exposure to Klaus Nomi, Wall of Voodoo, Pair Ubu, Steel Pulse, UB40, Echo and the Bunny Men, and The Police. So you see The Police, uh, Devo, Go-Go's, Wall of Voodoo, bands that were like already kind of known for something in America. But it was my first exposure to The Cramps. 
Yeah. Lux Interior sticks the microphone into his fucking pants. You're like, what mm. is this? First time I ever saw Dead Kennedys. Mm. Do you know what I mean though? Like seeing and yeah. just this mash, and it's like none of these bands have that much to do with each other, other than nobody else in my school knows these bands. <laughs> you know, I mean that sounds silly, but like, and but remember, uh, was it Steel Pulse comes out? They do KKK, yeah. and they came out yeah. in the robes. It was like it was such a stunning movie. And it's just a, just a concert movie of like shows in London and and L.A. But like that had such. And do you remember Gary Newman? coming out in the little car remember how fucking weird that was you're like what is going klaus know me total eclipse it's like what is this what is happening i would like to recommend to people uh, who are listening to this program that uh that right when we right when merlin hits the bell and then we start talking about Susie and the banshees you push play on erg a music war yeah and then this will perfectly line up with it okay should we do it right now you ready ready Erg a musical. Total eclipse of the sun. <laughs>